I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. It has to start somewhere. It has to start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? Welcome to episode 7 of Nobody Asked You Kevin. I'm Kevin. And of course... Nobody asked me. Nobody asked you, Kevin! Today, um, I kind of wanted to take things in a different direction. I play a uh, forensic toxicologist in the professional world in real life. Not podcasting life, but real life. Back off, man. I'm a scientist. And of course, um, forensics seems to gather quite a bit of interest. Um, in the news, and the media, on TV, in movies. Um, so what I did was I asked social media, um, Twitter, Facebook, other places in social media, um, if people have any questions about forensic toxicology, about drugs, <laughs> or even what it's like to work in a forensic lab. Um, and much to my surprise, I got a lot of great questions. So what I want to do this episode is answer those questions. Answer your questions. Um, This is kind of like a uh, Reddit AMA and Ask Me Anything um, about forensic toxicology. So I will address those questions. But um, first, I probably should explain what a forensic toxicologist is and what we do. But first, before that, um, a disclaimer. And you always have to have a disclaimer. This podcast right here, Nobody Asked You Kevin, is not associated with my current place of employment. Um, This is a personal podcast of mine. And all opinions that I have, because I have a lot, um, and thoughts that I express, and things that I say, um, are my opinions and thoughts and, and, and things. They are no one else's. Um, You wouldn't want them. You can't have them. They're not my employers. They are my own thoughts and opinions. With that said, um, like I said, this is not a professionally linked podcast. So I I cannot and will not discuss any active casework as that is privy to my employer. And that's the bottom line. Why? So, okay, now we've got that out of the way. This is a personal podcast. I've kind of got to talk about what forensic toxicology is. So this is kind of like my intro to forensic toxicology. I mean, what is toxicology? Um, toxicology is pretty much the study of the effects of chemicals and um, drugs and substances on living organisms. People who are in toxicology study the, the symptoms, the mechanics, the treatments, and the detection of these chemicals. Um, so what is forensic toxicology? Um, forensic toxicology is basically the use of toxicology to aid medical or legal investigations Typically, you think of deaths, poisonings, or even drug use, those sort of situations. Um, There are different areas of forensic toxicology. Um, I'm pretty much um, in the first section called post-mortem toxicology. So toxicology of dead people. People die. They use substances. They die. And we have to detect those substances in the body and help the medical examiner or coroner to determine a cause of death. Was the cause of death from a drug or a chemical? Um, The second area of forensic toxicology is called human performance toxicology. Um, It is what you would think of of like driving under the influence of drugs. Um, So law enforcement stops somebody under suspicion 
of being impaired or intoxicated on a substance, whether it's alcohol or an opioid or whatever it might be. Um, that is human performance toxicology. Um, there's a third section called um, basically drug facilitated crimes. This is where you, you hear of people who were given a dose or their, their drink was spiked with a drug or they were surreptitiously given um, a drug and then um, sexually assaulted or some other crime occurred. This is the area of more recently of um, something like Bill Cosby where he um, essentially gave women, drugged women um, with quaaludes and other things and then um, unbeknownst to the women they were consuming quaaludes and other drugs. Um, so that's the third section. And then the fourth section is kind of a really broad area, and it's called urine, just basic urine drug testing. Um, whether it's urine drug testing in a hospital or um, urine drug testing, um, a physician prescribes an opioid medication for a patient, and now they have to monitor that that patient is actually consuming those drugs so they have to submit to urinary drug tests. Um, that's one section of urine drug testing. Another one would be um, someone's on probation and they have to submit to a monthly drug test or whatever. Um, I really don't deal with any of those urine drug tests. Um, my experience is pretty much all in post-mortem toxicology and human performance toxicology. So, I mean, the, the educational path that one takes to become a forensic toxicologist. Um, there is no set way to become a toxicologist um, in forensics. Um, I know people who have bachelor's degrees and master's degrees and doctorate degrees, um, bachelor's in biology and chemistry and forensic science and in other areas, master's in biology and chemistry and forensic science, doctorates in um, chemistry um, as well as um, the typical pharmacology or toxicology. Um, pretty much we're all, we should all be board certified in some way or another. Uh, there are definitely some certifications that you can achieve. Um, but we have a lot of on-the-job training, a lot of continual training. The field of forensic toxicology tends to move pretty quickly, as all forensics does. So we have to keep up with the current advances in the field. And then really you gain a lot of experience and that is really the most important thing. You gain experience by doing things hands-on. Um, so again, there is no set educational path. So what does a forensic toxicologist do? It's kind of varies. Um, the, the first thing is a forensic toxicologist will analyze specimens. We analyze specimens in a lab. Um, we'll talk about what the specimens are, but primarily um, we are analyzing sa samples from dead bodies. Um, we analyze those specimens. We detect drugs. We then um, perform case review and release cases. We interpret the results from those um, analyses, and then we... Also provide um, testimony in court because a lot of these cases, I mean, they are death cases. Someone dies. Um, a lot of them end up in the court system. Someone gets charged with a crime, and we have to go in as an as an expert witness. Uh, I mean, whether it's on behalf of the defense or on behalf of the prosecution, we have to go in and testify to the accuracy of the toxicology results as well as provide more expert witness testimony meaning what do the results mean so it's all well and good to say we detected cocaine in this uh, blood sample taken from this person who died three days ago but what does that actually mean is a whole other story and we do a lot of uh, publishing and presenting of material as well as, again, continually learning. So to that whole aspect of 
analyzing specimens because this is a big thing for a toxicology lab but um, we analyze again in post-mortem toxicology so cases where someone has died um, the coroner medical examiner will draw samples from the body and then send them to a lab whether it's their own medical examiner lab or another lab to do toxicology testing um, a lot of times we'll get blood. I mean, that's the main sample we'll get is blood. Um, we will get urine, so we do test urine. Um, vitreous humor, we test vitreous humor. If you don't know what vitreous humor is, vitreous humor is the material that's found within the eyeball, and it's good to test for certain drugs, especially alcohol. We test various tissues. Um, so a lot of times um, in cases we'll have be, we'll get liver to test, kidney, brain is a good one, um, testing brain in toxicology, um, as well as spleen, and in very really significantly decomposed cases um, where there isn't much left over um, other than maybe some sort of muscle, we'll occasionally get muscle or some sort of decomposed tissue to test. And we also test gastric contents. Um, that's a kind of a nasty one sometimes, but um, gastric contents can tell you a lot about a case. Did cons did someone consume a large amount of substance? Was there a mass of pills found in their stomach? Um, what were those pills? Um, it it could tell you a lot in overall in an overall case for toxicology and and helping to determine cause of death. Um, there are other samples that we test. Um, it's not as common in post-mortem toxicology, so things like hair. Um, hair testing really isn't done in post-mortem tox. It's done a lot in uh, poisoning cases and those sort of things, but not post-mortem. Um, you can test nails. You can test bone, like fingernails, toenail clippings, um, bone as well. Um, those are very specialized labs that do that sort of thing. Um, there are oral fluid testing labs. Uh, meaning saliva um, that is a new kind of a branch off of uh, forensic toxicology these days as well as there is um, a subset of testing that involves testing meconium so the the first stool sample that's um, produced by a baby after birth um, it is forms throughout the second and third trimester of pregnancy and it's a like a tarry substance doesn't smell which is awesome but it, it's a tarry substance and it actually can give a history of maternal drug use during the pregnancy um, it's something it's an area of forensic toxicology that happens um, but it's, specialized labs do that sort of testing um, other important specimens that we look at include um, the traditional crime lab stuff, so needles and syringes, powders, and pills, capsules and tablets, uh, various fluids and liquids, various drug paraphernalia, whether it's, um, um, what do you want to say, uh, rolled up dollar bills with residue, spoons, um, or something else with a residue that was used to um, when someone was consuming a drug. Um, we get a lot of unknown green plant material. Um, we get that a lot. And then we also do get our fair share of food and drink items, so foodstuff items where someone thinks they're being poisoned and we have to test it to determine is that person actually being poisoned? Is there a drug in that food or drink um, or is there not so we do get that occasionally as well so again we, we encounter drugs like cocaine and heroin fentanyl crystal methamphetamine LSD marijuana I mean all the typical drugs you think of MDMA or ecstasy um, kind of the newly emerging drugs like bath salts and stimulants that are associated with those and like I said, fentanyl, but other prescription opioids like hydrocodone and oxycodone. 
um, other newly emerging drugs like uh, Spicer K2, which are known as synthetic cannabinoids, um, other designer substances, um, and other things like that. But um, a lot of times we'll be dealing with the the routine drugs, like I said, the prescription opioids, the heroines, the cocaines, the methamphetamines. Uh, those are the big ones. So with that, I mean, I think you kind of understand what we do. We work in a lab. We identify drugs. We help and aid a coroner or medical examiner in determining if a drug or a drug substance or a metabolite or something was present in the body, which will then help the, the coroner or medical examiner determine a cause of death. Basically, is it drug-related or can drugs be excluded from the cause of death? So with that, I'm going to um, I'll shift into, I got a lot of good questions from social media, um, which I'm not surprised. A lot of people emailed questions or sent me questions on Twitter or Facebook. Um, so, so I'm going to answer, I mean, a few of those right now. I think I have about 10 to 15 questions I'd like to answer. So the first question um, came, let's see, I'm just reading down here, um, from at ScreamingMD on Twitter. Um, she asked, how often do you interface with medical toxicologists? Because I believe she is a medical toxicologist. And and the one thing is medical toxicologists work in a hospital setting. So someone comes into the hospital setting, um, they need to be treated, and the medical toxicologist will help um, with their treatment. They will, they will treat the patient. Um, unfortunately, from my aspect of things, um, in postmortem toxicology, um, we only see the samples after someone has died, typically. There is a section of clinical toxicology where um, the sample is drawn in a hospital from a, pa a living patient, and then that sample is, is tested to determine what they, that person may be under the influence of or intoxicated with or has been poisoned with whatever. Um, but from a post-mortem toxicology lab standpoint, um, we don't really interface with medical toxicologists at all. Um, it's something that I always thought would be neat would be to work in a hospital-based toxicology lab where um, you had full comprehensive toxicology services available. Um, I always thought that would be fun because it's a different look at things. You have a living, breathing patient who is being treated and you're trying to determine if if it's necessary you're trying to determine what they're under the influence of so unfortunately we don't interface with medical toxicologists much at all and I would love to so um, the next question is from Skelecast 1 um, Skelecast um, podcast on um, social media on Twitter, um, which is a great podcast, by the way, go listen to it. Um, but he asked, what is the weirdest substance you ever seen result in a fatality? Now I can talk about this one because it's years, years, years ago, and it's not associated with my current job, but, um, really the weirdest case that I had ever run across, um, was a case that came into the lab this had to be 12 years ago or so now, but it involved a cattle antibiotic um, called Tilmycosin. Um, basically what had happened, and this is just a long story told really short, but a person was on a farm and he was borrowing um, drugs for his cattle because he had his own few cattle on his own little farm and he, was, he worked on someone else's farm. And he basically was over there. He was borrowing some drugs from his, his employer. He was going to take them back to his place and use them on his animals. So it was raining and it was a nasty night. He um, basically loaded up the drugs 
And then his wife, who was back home, got a text message that basically said, help me, which was kind of odd. And she tried to text him back and didn't get an answer. And uh, she got really worried after a while. And she called police because she knew where she when she knew where he was. And she called police, had them go out there, and she, they the police found him on the ground, um, face down. Um, there was a cattle syringe, a pretty big gauge needle syringe, not for use in humans, obviously. I wouldn't want to be stuck by that. Um, he um, and it was a bent needle as well. Um, he was found deceased, or he was found unresponsive and actually deceased on the ground. Um, the syringe was found within 10, 15 feet of him, and um, it had been raining, so it was really wet out. Um, it tur- what turns out through some identification techniques that we did, we did identify the drug in the syringe as tilmycosin, which is a cattle. Uh, it was an antibiotic for, I believe, cattle, sheep, and goats um, not to be injected intravenously, um, to be injected, I believe, intramuscularly. Um, and what had happened was he had loaded that up in that syringe and for whatever reason did not secure the syringe. And I guess he was in a hurry because he slipped on the wet grass because it was raining pretty good out there. And he injected himself, stuck himself with that syringe. And that cattle antibiotic um, got into his system. And we actually went back to his blood samples that were sent to us at, from autopsy. And we tested that. And we found this cattle antibiotic in his blood. So obviously the cattle antibiotic is not supposed to be there. Um, I believe the cattle antibiotic itself was pretty cardiotoxic. And um, that's what he died from, a tilmycosin intoxication, tilmycosin toxicity. Um, it's not something you see every day in um, forensic toxicology. But not too long after that, I actually got two more cases um, where tilmycosin was suspected. And it turns out that those two cases were positive for tilmycosin as well. So it's not just a... Um, a, an isolated incident. I believe we've seen Tilmycosin a few times now, uh, and they've all been like accidental sticks or accidental pokes with cattle syringes or animal syringes. So that's that's pretty much the weirdest substance I've seen in a fatality because the vast majority of what we see is the routine stuff, the opioids and the, the um, benzodiazepines and the alcohols and mixtures, methamphetamines and other stuff. Um, we don't see a lot of those weird things. So when you see a weird thing, you really remember about that case. Another question um, came from Katie Sloan21 on Twitter. Um, she asked, what's your best advice for aspiring forensic scientists in the field? I, I would say probably take as many labs as you can. Get your hands dirty with instrumentation, analytical instrumentation, if you can. Get in, get in the nitty-gritty of things. Get your hands dirty. Work on instruments like um, HPLCs, so high-performance liquid chromatographs, or the newer generations, UPLCs, ultra-performance liquid chromatographs, or mass spectrometry. Get, get yourself familiar with a lot of that whether it's um, triple quadrupole mass spectrometry or time of flight mass spectrometry, get your hands in there, work on those instruments, get experience on those if you can. I know it's hard to do sometimes. Take as many labs as you can. And, and really what I found um, really important is never stop reading. Always continue to read the literature always keep up with the latest literature because you'll never, 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 never fall behind if you keep reading. And the only way to stay up on things, I mean, papers, hundreds of papers come out every month, hundreds and thousands in the main journals, um, even in the main forensic toxicology journals. So like things like 
the Journal of Analytical Toxicology, or Forensic Toxicology Journal, or Forensic Science International, or the Journal of Forensic Sciences, Drug Testing and Analysis. Um, certainly those sort of journals keep up with what's out there. Um, that will help you tremendously if you continue with that. But if, I mean, if you're still in school, take as many lab classes as you can. Learn good laboratory practices, um, GLP. Learn good techniques. Because if you learn these techniques early, and you practice them and practice them and practice them, before you know it, and by the time you get a job in a lab, if you want to work in a lab, you don't have to, but if you want to work in a lab, you will be far ahead of the current group of people who had just hired in. Um, practice, practice, practice good lab techniques. It's very, very important. Another question. Let's see. This one came from at the new imposter um, on Twitter. I mean, he asked, what procedures and technology would be needed to distinguish whether someone had died from a morphine overdose versus a diamorphine um, or heroin overdose, basically? Um, good question, because this is something we fight every day um, in the lab. Um, basically, so, so you have heroin, which is diacetylmorphine or diamorphine if you are... Um, in any place other than the United States. Um, so I say diacetylmorphine or diacetylmorphine. Um, basically, it's morphine with two acetyl groups on it. So you have two acetyl groups, diacetylmorphine, um, which is heroin. Um, that is metabolized, so it's deacetylated um, in the body into what we monitor as 6-acetylmorphine or 6-AM. 6-acetylmorphine um, sticks around in the blood for up to maximally two and a half to three hours. It's, it's a very short-lived metabolite. Um, it only sticks around for two and a half to three hours before it is fully metabolized to morphine. So it is deacetylated de again into morphine. So Again, the, the heroin metabolism is heroin or diacetylmorphine is consumed. Within minutes, it is transformed into 6-acetylmorphine. And then 6-acetylmorphine is transformed into morphine a little bit slower, but still pretty quickly because it is pretty much undetectable after about 2-3 to three hours in the blood. So in order to determine whether someone has died from a morphine overdose um, or a heroin overdose basically what we do in the lab is we test things by mass spectrometry and we're looking for morphine 6-acetylmorphine and then codeine as well um, codeine is a constituent of the opium poppy um, which is from what heroin is made um, so that's what we consider the kind of like the holy trinity of heroin usage is where you will see morphine, 6-acetylmorphine, and codeine in a blood sample. Um, so again, talking about if someone consumes morphine, you're only going to see morphine in the blood. And morphine in the blood sticks around for about several hours up to about a day maximally. So if someone consumes morphine, you're going to see just morphine. If someone consumes heroin and they die, and they die within two to three hours of consumption of heroin, then you're going to see morphine and 6-acetylmorphine, sometimes codeine as well, depending on the, the product itself. But you will see 6-acetylmorphine and morphine within two to three hours. Now, if the person kind of survived for a while so they survive longer than two to three hours you will not see six acetylmorphine in the blood you will only see morphine um, this is where we then can go to urine testing because urine testing affords a much wider window of detection 
Um, 6-acetylmorphine sticks around in the urine for typically 12 to 24 hours after usage. So, um, and then morphine can stick around anywhere for one to four days after use, depending on dose. Um, so if the person, again, consumes heroin and they die within two to three hours, you, you most likely will see 6-acetylmorphine and morphine. But if they take longer than two to three hours to die, you will only see morphine in the blood. You test the urine, and if they had died within 12 to 24 hours, typically, those are it's a range, um, then you will see 6-acetylmorphine in the urine as well as morphine. Now, if the death had occurred more than a day or so, I mean, 12 to tw more than 12 to 24 hours um, after consumption of heroin, then you would typically probably only see morphine in the urine. I mean, that in those cases where you just see morphine in blood or morphine in urine, um, you, you have to rely on the testing. If there was a product found or a powder found or a residue, you have to kind of rely on your, your scene evidence. Was there um, heroin or was there heroin found in the syringe? Or was there heroin found, um, so diacetylmorphine, was that found in um, a powder product that was found next to the body or on the body? Um, so you're kind of, at that point in time, you're kind of relying on other scene evidence. But um, pretty much, though, we can detect it pretty easily. I mean, it's something easily found. It's just difficult because of the, the detection times. 6-acetylmorphine only sticks around for a very short time. So with that, um, that's the way we detect it, and that's the way we determine um, whether it's a morphine overdose or a heroin overdose. All right, next question um, comes from W.O. Griffin on Twitter. The, the question reads, this question is gross. And my is not really gross, but this question is gross, but it gets to the heart of what I want to know. What samples can you test and what can you not test? So he asks pee, poop, mucus, blood, hair, skin, fingernails, food, dirt, etc. What are any unusual areas that have been tested? Um, I did kind of talk about this a little bit ago. Um, we routinely test blood. Um, that is the sample um, that is most important in postmortem forensic toxicology because drugs that are in detected in the blood give you the best snapshot of what was going on at the time of the death or the incident or whatever happened. Uh, we do test urine, pee, um, and again, that gives you a much wider window of detection. Um, it basically shows you what someone has been exposed to over the past one to four days. Um, it's very drug dependent, very pH dependent as well, but typically for most drugs, and I say most, one to four days is a good range for when you could detect it in the, in the urine. We don't do any sort of fecal testing other than the occasional meconium that we might get um, from a baby, but um, poop or species we really don't test uh, even though a lot of the post-mortem samples the decomposed samples do kind of smell like shit a little bit uh, we don't need to test any mucus I have never been involved in hair testing and it's not something that's routinely done in post-mortem like I said but um, it is done in in like poisoning cases and like heavy metals and and things if someone's being long-term poisoned with arsenic or uh, mercury or something, uh, hair testing could be good for that. Um, you can do drugs of abuse testing in hair as well, um, but it's something I've never really been involved in, and it, it seems too tedious to me, so I just don't really like it that much. Um, skin fingernails, or fingernails, is a whole subset of, there are some labs that specialize in that sort of testing. Like I said, we have routinely tested food items so I mean whether it's 
I mean, I'm just thinking of things that I've tested in the past that I can that I can mention. Whether it's, of course, whether it's drinks that have been allegedly spiked with something, um, alcohol or soft drinks or water bottles or whatever. Um, we've also tested, of course, brownies. So. <laughs> Uh, special brownies um, that have contained certain things as well as food items like tested cereal like cocoa pebbles and cocoa krispies I've tested Wheaties um, someone thought they were someone was putting stuff in their cereal tested teriyaki sauce someone was being poisoned through their teriyaki sauce and that was true um, tested oatmeal that's a whole other story I'll go into another day, but someone was being poisoned via oatmeal. Uh, if you ever want to get the lowdown on that, I'll either tell that story in another episode or you can catch me on the side sometime, uh, message me or something, and I'll tell you about it. But um, yeah, oatmeal. Um, so a lot of food items we've tested before, and it's helpful, um, especially in those poisoning cases. Um, but in post-mortem talks, we don't do a lot of that. Um, that's something that's typically done in more of a crime lab setting um, in solid dose evidence drug chemistry testing. There was a question, and I just did see it. Um, it came from D-Tubocurine um, from Twitter. Um, and she was asking, she had a, some really good questions, but one of the, the sections, I mean, there was, do you have a favorite molecule or drug or one you find most interesting? Um, what drugs are actually the most dangerous to work with and which ones are just overhyped um, are there any interesting or surprising stories or near poisonings any cool or unique poisons or drugs you've detected or worked with um, I would probably say I'll answer a couple of these because what drugs are actually the most dangerous to work with I mean obviously you're not consuming these substances that we work with but the the one that's be, that's been the most overhyped from a exposure standpoint you see, and I just saw a story about this earlier today was um, uh, you see these stories pop up in the media of a law enforcement officer stops a car or arrests somebody and they have a powder on them and now all of a sudden the law enforcement officer is um, got this powder on them or they have got these pills on them and they've been exposed to this substance and they think it's fentanyl because long story short fentanyl which is a very potent opioid drug that's used in medicine every day across the United States across the world um, for sedation and pain control and, and other things it has become a drug of abuse and it has invaded the drug supply, basically the heroin supply in the United States and other places. So if you think you're using heroin, there is a very good chance you are actually using fentanyl, which is a very troubling in its own problem because we've seen vast amounts of overdoses. But getting back to the question, um, the officer finds the powder, or they, get, they get the powder on them, and then all of a sudden, they're like, crap, I've got this powder on me. I'm, I'm exposed to this. It could be fentanyl. Crap. All of a sudden, now I'm feeling lightheaded. And I'm feeling dizzy. And now my heart's beating out of my chest. I'm becoming very tachycardic. Um, they whip themselves up into a, friendly, a frenzy. And they believe they've been exposed to fentanyl. And they believe that they're being poisoned by fentanyl. Um, number one, no, they're not. They're not being poisoned by fentanyl be because fentanyl can't be absorbed that way. You can hold powder fentanyl on your hands and it won't be absorbed through your skin. Um, and the media has kind of portrayed fentanyl as being, and other analogs or derivatives of fentanyl, as being able to go through the skin and that's not necessarily true. Um, there needs to be some sort of mechanism in place or vector in place that would transfer that powder or fentanyl from 
outside of the skin to inside of the skin. Pharmaceutical companies have invested large amounts of money and time to get to develop a transdermal patch system, which allows fentanyl to be absorbed via the skin. Um, so these officers, they think they're being poisoned by fentanyl. Turns out they're not. And even if you look at the um, symptoms they report, the lightheadedness and dizziness and tachycardia, heart rate, re uh, uh, their heart basically beating out of their chest, and their breathing is really rapid. Basically what's happening, it's some sort of psychosomatic reaction or nocebo effect, basically. They think they're being poisoned, they think they've been exposed to fentanyl, and then they start getting themselves worked up about it. They and basically induce panic. They are suffering a panic attack. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Because when you think about opioids and the, the effects of fentanyl, fentanyl is an opioid drug. It's, it's a central nervous system depressant. It's going to slow your body processes down. It's not going to make you tachycardic. It's not going to be like body stimulation. Your breathing is going to slow. Your heart rate is going to slow down. Um, you're not going to be um, awake and I mean alert. Um, so uh, most of the time what you see in the media is reports of these things and people are basically whipping themselves up into a panic. Oh shit, I've got this powder on me. What do I do? Oh shit, it can be fentanyl. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. I am, I'm going to die. I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And all you really need to do if you get fentanyl, if it, the powder is actually fentanyl, because who knows what that powder is really without lab analysis. But um, if you had some sort of powder fentanyl on you, you go find a sink and you wash your hands with soap and water or you wash the exposed area with soap and water. You dry yourself off and you go on about your day. That is okay. You will live. You will be fine. You will live happily ever after. So, <laughs> again, that's kind of off on a long winding story, but that's it's portrayed as the most dangerous to work with, really. Like something like fentanyl or an analog called called carfentanyl, which is used um, medically in veterinary medicine as a large animal immobilizer. Um, so it's used for like rhinos and and elephants and bears and yak and, and all sorts of large scale animals. Um, the summer of 2016 to late 2017, carfentanil had invaded the heroin supply in the United States. It was being found in the heroin that people were using. So a large animal immobilizer meant for elephants and rhinos and, and yak and bears was found in heroin in the United States as well as other places. Primarily disappeared now, but it's still out there a little bit, uh, but it's not out there to the um, in the same prevalence as it once was a year, year and a half ago. But even that sort of thing, that's not, carfentanil is not going to absorb through the skin. Um, and even if you were thinking about inhaling it or absorbing a large dust storm kicks up, wind kicks up, and you have a powder of carfentanil or a powder of fentanyl in front of you, yeah, don't breathe that stuff in, obviously. Fentanyl is not easily aerosolized. Carfentanil is not easy, easily aerosolized. That doesn't mean it can't be. It's just not easily aerosolized. So, again, those sort of drugs are portrayed as the most dangerous to work with. And pretty much they're overhyped. Because, I mean, I've touched powdered fentanyl with bare hands. And obviously I'm still living and, and talking to you right now. So... That's pretty much the the thing that I think is most overhyped. Okay, the next um, suggestion that I got was from Amanda Albers on Facebook, um, the Leftover Army uh, Facebook page. Um, she um, basically said, talk about Prince's death. So the musical um, genius Prince died a while back. 
and it turns out he was actually it was a fentanyl related death um I don't know a lot of the specifics. I do know what was reported in the media and what I've seen at different conferences and, and talked to people about. But um, um, basically, what the law enforcement found was that when they went inside Prince's residence after he had died and they investigated, um, they found basically tablets in pill bottles that were labeled essentially as something like hydrocodone acetaminophen. So like something that would be Vicodin um, that would have the, the correct imprints on the tablets for Vicodin. But when they actually analyzed these um, tablets in, the, in their laboratory, they found fentanyl and they found a drug called U47700. These, of course, number fentanyl and U47700 should not be in a tablet that looks like hydrocodone acetaminophen. Um, but what what these really were, they were counterfeit tablets. They were p tablets that were non of non-pharmaceutical origin. They were made on the counterfeit market. Someone had um, been sourcing Prince's medication, not from a legitimate pharmacy but from someone um, either on the street or on a illegitimate um, uh, company. Um, and these substances that were contained within um, these tablets are much, much, much more potent as a central nervous system depressant than hydrocodone. So something like fentanyl um, is very potent. And, and potency is always is always discussed and, and it's it's kind of it's hard to describe but it's described to be um, significantly more potent than something like morphine or hydrocodone um, u47700 is a designer substance it's basically what we would consider a research chemical it is a chemical that um, was excuse me was synthesized by the upjohn company um, decades ago and um, they were doing research synthesizing a bunch of these compounds and they um, synthesized them did some of the early pharmacological testing on them um, and then moved on to a next series of compounds to synthesize and U47700 is about 7.5 I believe times more potent than morphine as a depressant or an analgesic I should say and um, so you have substances, someone thinks they're consuming hydrocodone acetaminophen, but in actuality, in reality, these substances that they're consuming are actually fentanyl and U47700. Um, he did die from a, it was originally called, I believe, a fentanyl overdose, and then I believe U47700 was found at a later time, um, but yeah, he was ingesting, Prince was ingesting um, counterfeit tablets, more than likely. And which is kind of sad when you think about it. Because um, in a similar situation, I mean, obviously, I think we all know that Tom Petty died a while back as well. And it turns out that he was also caught up in the opioid crisis that's ongoing. Um, in his blood, they found... Or they found um, uh, acetylfentanyl and 4-ANPP and fentanyl and oxycodone. Um, acetylfentanyl um, is, is one of those substances that is a fentanyl analog, a fentanyl derivative. It's not a medicine. Um, and 4-ANPP and is a precursor substance to illicitly manufactured fentanyl. So fentanyl that's non-pharmaceutical um, that is a illicitly manufactured substance um, he I mean it turns out that Tom Petty as well was using something which I don't know if he knew he was using it or not I don't know but he was using illicitly manufactured fentanyl it wasn't pharmaceutical fentanyl um, so both Prince and Tom Petty 
we're caught up in these kind of emerging substances of illicitly manufactured fentanyl. And that's a really, really sad state of affairs. Um, it's not just hitting the streets. And um, people um, that are using these substances um, that have millions and millions of dollars and people are using these substances um, that have barely any money. I mean, it's, it's something that everyone has been caught up in and it's a crisis that's really not going away in the United States. Still hasn't. Illicitly manufactured fentanyl is I mean, all over the place in the United States still to this day. All right. Um, next questions. This is kind of, I'm going to piggyback two of these questions. So on Twitter, at Autolycos um, asked, what questions do you get asked in reply? We actually don't do that. And that's in conjunction. There's another question that says, um, do certain things fly under the radar of standard toxicology screenings? And if so, why don't all screenings check for everything? Is it cost or time restrictions? And that was from Ben Kelly on the Facebook group Potter and Family. These questions kind of go hand in hand. The questions that we get asked all the time is, can you check for all poisons or all toxins or all drugs? And the, the answer to that is, no, we don't do that. We cannot do that. There is no one set toxicology test that will test for everything under the sun. Labs that do this sort of testing have developed what we call comprehensive panels of drugs. Um, so they're wide-scale panels, but the, the technology that we use and that exists um, does not allow you to target everything. Um, there is something called targeted screening, and there's something called untargeted screening. Um, targeted screening is you're looking for those things you know exist. Untargeted screening is one of those things where you're looking for things that you know exist, and then you're looking for things that might just be there. So you're going to try to identify unknown substances. Um, uh, that's a very difficult thing to do and requires very, very specialized instrumentation that not everybody has access to. Um, so a lot of labs will do targeted analyses for their um, comprehensive testing. Um, so when someone says, can you test for all poisons? And the answer is no. It's, I mean, it's because of the technology is what it is. Um, we can only test for certain things. Um, you, and we test for toxicologically relevant things. That's the important part of that too, because yeah, you can test for um, antibiotics. I mean, no one's dying from azithromycin, or no one's dying from clindamycin. Um, why would you need to test for some of those? Um, why would you test for strange drug um, or why would you test for um, um, cardiovascular drugs or or certain drugs that are taken for high cholesterol no one's dying from the actual drug itself they're, they're, they're dying from another reason they're not dying from an overdose of a cholesterol drug um, so we don't test for everything under the sun and we don't need to because some things are not toxicologically relevant. Um, uh, and the technology again doesn't allow us to test for everything. And for what we do test for in a lab, um, it takes months and months and months to develop those tests and then properly validate them to, to, to show that they, they work properly, they're accurate, and they are precise and they give you the same answer over and over and over. Um, they don't change throughout time. So, I mean, it takes months and months and months. It takes a lot of time to develop these tests. It takes a lot of people time. It takes a lot of instrument time. It, it's a lot of money that's involved in doing these things. Um, so you can't test for all poisons. There's not a way to do that. And unfortunately, we get asked that all the time um, and it's, it's because people don't really recognize that that's true 
I mean that well that's that you can't do that because and I think a part of it is you see it on TV you see it in shows like CSI you see it in shows like um, NCIS and and all these other crime or forensic related shows that can you can tell the one person in their crime lab that runs all forensic science disciplines which on a side note doesn't happen um, but this person can tell um, if something can give you the result within 20 minutes and can tell you that it was drug X that was made in Mexico um, and then brought over the border five days ago and then um, injected intramuscularly into the body and the person died within 10 minutes. That stuff does not happen and cannot happen. So I think what happens is you have like the CSI effect or whatever from these TV shows and people think because it's presented that way on TV that's what happens in real life and um, that stuff can't be any further from the truth. Um, cases take a long time to um, be resolved from a toxicology perspective. I mean, it can take anywhere from a few days to a few months for toxicology testing. So it's not something that's done within a couple of hours or even within a day typically. Um, so again, we get, we, we get to ask that all the time and we have to respond with, no, we can't test for all poisons. That's not possible. And I think the last question I'll answer because we're, we're coming up about, about an hour or so into this now. Um, the question came from uh, Real Impolitik on Twitter. Um, and this person asked, or at least said, I would like to hear all about what it's like to work in a forensic tox lab. How you got where you are today in your career and other routes into forensic talks than yours if you know of them. Um, what it's like to work in a forensic talks lab? It's it's not like, like I said, it's not like it's on TV. So if you believe it's on TV, you believe what you say on TV, you are sadly mistaken. Um, it's not like it's on TV. Um, it's like any other lab atmosphere. It's brightly lit typically. At least in a talks lab, it better be brightly lit. Um, there are mass spectrometers and chromatographs all over the place, centrifuges and um, fume hoods. It's a basic wet chemistry lab. Um, we have to perform organic extractions to extract the drugs out of the samples that we are receiving so that we can inject that extract on an instrument and determine what drugs are present or not present. Um, so, I mean, it's like a typical chemistry lab. It's, it's really nothing too spectacular from a lab standpoint. It's all basic wet chemistry. Um, so there's that aspect of it. But um, the other aspect of it is kind of the other professional side of toxicology. It's not within a laboratory at all. Um, you're spending a lot of time in the court setting. So you're called to testify in court. You're under subpoena to testify on a certain day. You appear in court. You are asked a whole bunch of questions about the, the lab that you work in, the accreditations of the lab, your background as a toxicologist, um, uh, all the information about that. You can either then, you'll either be admitted as an expert witness or not admitted as an expert witness and um, then you can if you are admitted then you can move on to being questioned about the results themselves and be through direct examination by the prosecutor and then on cross-examination by the defense attorney then redirect and recross and re-redirect and re-recross and um, uh, cases for that can range um, from testifying for five minutes on the stand and then I've had cases where I've on the stand for six to eight hours like a whole day long I mean obviously with breaks for um, normal breaks and then lunch but for six to eight hours I've testified in certain cases and then there's been cases where it's been jury trials versus bench trials or um, 
just normal hearings and and things like that but um i find that i spend a lot of my time these days in a courtroom um, or at least waiting to appear in court because what what will happen is they'll tell you to the attorneys the subpoena that's issued for you will say you need to appear at courthouse y on this date at 9 a.m well you get there at 8 30 because you should always be a little bit early and then um, you sit there nine o'clock rolls around 10 attorney comes out from court and says hey we're gonna get to you in a little bit um, we're running a little bit behind and then 10 30 11 rolls around they break for lunch attorney comes out and talks to you and says yeah we're still running a bit behind we got two people ahead of you it's gonna be the afternoon now um, and then you might finally get on after lunch about 2 or 3 p.m. a lot of times uh, I find that out that it's more true than not that you actually have to wait around a little bit um, so again what it's like to work in a lab the lab part is the typical chemistry lab stuff again not like on TV but I find it's more fun these days to be outside the lab and actually have to go to court and then have to give um, a lot of what we do in forensic talks is continual education as well as uh, professional development so whether it's giving talks and presentations to our fellow toxicologists and peers and colleagues in the field or it's helping coroners and medical examiners and pathologists understand forensic toxicology more um, so that it, it helps them um, uh, in their determination of cause of death uh, because it is not the forensic toxicologist purview to determine cause of death that is the pathologist or the coroner or whoever it might be that is not us as a forensic toxicologist we don't do that we aid in the determination of cause of death but we do not make that cause of death determination so um, anything that we can do as a toxicologist to better help the pathologist or coroner understand the toxicology um, in their case the better off everyone will be so uh, if you ever want to know more about that I mean don't hesitate to email me or or direct message me or whatever on social media and I can easily talk to you more about that because it's something hard to talk about just when I'm talking to myself here for the podcast but it's more of a conversation that really needs to be had um, I think that's probably the last question that I'll answer today but I'd love to do more of these sorts of podcasts where I take your questions or even here in a little while when I'd like to have people on the podcast and we can have a conversation about these sorts of things because I don't want this podcast to just be about one thing yes I've talked about in previous episodes I've talked about heavy metal music and ice nine kills and going to a live guar concert and I've gave my thoughts on Stan Lee's death and my favorite music of 2018 and my favorite Christmas music but I'd love to talk more science and I'd like to talk more of this and it's an interesting subject matter in an area where people have all sorts of questions so I can get into a lot of this stuff much deeper in the future but hopefully um, I was able to answer some of these questions and keep you a little entertained um, throughout this um, last hour hour and five minutes or so so um, with that I'm gonna end this episode of the podcast and um, again I do thank you for listening to my rambling because um, this is fun to do for me at least um, so I love talking about this sort of science stuff and what I do uh, so again I if you want to listen to this I mean you can always find me on social media um, the podcast is on Twitter at asked Kevin um, you can find it on Facebook at um, nobody asked you Kevin uh, on Facebook page 
Um, you can find me personally on Twitter as well. My verified Twitter account is at Forensic Tox Guy. Um, you can reach me via email at the show. Um, nobody asked you Kevin at gmail.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, Apple Music, please do. That is always awesome. I've gotten, I think, one review, and at least I've seen. But if you, if, if I do get any reviews, I will happily read the review over the air here. And really, if you want to just drop me a line and let me know how I'm doing or what you would love to hear more of, what subject matters you would love to hear, um, what topics, anything like that. If you want to come on the podcast and talk to me about something, by all means, contact me. So um, with that, I'm going to bid you adieu. And all I would say is be kind, my friends. Peace. <laughs>